less Israelis solve correctly the math challenge. In math, there is one answer at the end. So less of them solved it correctly. But from those who did solve it correctly, there were over 10 times more, okay, ways of solving the problem than the Singaporean ones. My guest today is Inbel Ariely. Inbel served as lieutenant in Unit 8200, the Israel Defense Forces' elite intelligent corps. Unit 8200 has turned out thousands of tech-savvy entrepreneurs that went on to found their own tech companies or to occupy leading positions in established ones. She's also the author of Chutzpah, Why Israel is a Hub of Innovation Entrepreneurship. Despite being a tiny country, Israel has the highest concentration of startups per capita in the world. Dubbed Silicon Wadi, Israel ranks third in the World Economic Forum's Innovation Rating. I recently sat down with Inbal and we talked about what led to these remarkable achievements and what secrets do Israeli tech entrepreneurs know that others can learn. Inbal, thanks so much for being on the show. I was looking forward to it since uh, we spoke last week and uh, really excited to have you here. Same here and thanks for inviting me. Okay. so. There's been so much over the past several years, I think since the book Startup Nation, which showed Israel as a technological marvel in terms of its entrepreneurship, uh, its place and ranking in the world in terms of innovation. I think you had in your book the most, uh, uh, there's one startup for every 2,000 people or something to that effect? Even more than that, yes. Even more than that. Okay. So your book is written from a totally different perspective. Your book is called Chutzpah, why Israel is a hub of innovation and entrepreneurship. So before we go forward, what does chutzpah mean? So it depends who you ask. Um, if you ask an American or someone who's actually an outsider looking into Israel, um, chutzpah would mean audacity and daring and being proactive and creative. If you ask an Israeli, chutzpah, so slightly differently pronounced, chutzpah and chutzpah, chutzpah for us Israelis is actually rudeness. So the word has two different meanings, uh, but I actually think there's something in common. And that is that if you take the mindset of chutzpah and put it on the right tracks, um, it's a very positive attribute, actually. Okay, excellent. So your book starts from a different premise. You basically say it's nothing to do with the water or the air of Israel, that I think it's the, mo the, the number one company or second with the most um, companies on the, on the NASDAQ stock exchange. It was the number one. Number, number three, U.S. Number three. is number one. China uh, is number two. China. Israel is number three. Okay. And after China, a lot of them would be delisted. So probably Israel's number one now. So... You went, and you're, you're, before you can go on, you're an entrepreneur yourself and also a tech innovator, right? So could you just give me a little brief background? I think you're in um, uh, Unit 8200, right? So in my military service, I served in, 80, in 8200, uh, the equivalent of the NSA in Israel, um, and later on started my professional career um, in the tech ecosystem in Israel for the first decade of my career as a general counsel. Um, so I'm a lawyer by practice, 
but again, in the tech ecosystem. And then uh, for the second plus decade of my career, over 15 years uh, above my, my legal practice, um, as an entrepreneur myself um, and as a uh, investor also. Okay, so you're pretty, you're pretty versed, invested in the tech world of Israel. So Correct. you went and you said, all right, what is it about Israel that has so much innovation the number one place, I think, one number one where there's most uh, startup capital going into. Is that right? I remember you had a whole mm -hmm. bunch of things in there. Uh, the most, uh, second to most companies on NASDAQ after the United States. Uh, tremendous innovation from a country with very, very little resources in a terrible neighborhood of the world. What's the magic sauce? So you went ahead and you said the magic sauce is the children and how they're raised. Is that more or less what you came up with? Yes, yes, indeed. So as an, from an insider's perspective, uh, I would say, yes, the military plays a very important role in our lives here in Israel in terms of innovation and in terms in, of access to technology and in terms of development of leadership skills. Correct. However, it's not something that starts, um, you know, at the age of 18, just like that when we joined the military. My thesis um, is that we actually joined the military at 18, military or gap year or social service, by the way, all different frameworks that exist in Israel. But we joined them at the age of 18, equipped already with uh, a unique toolbox or uh, unique muscles that we have developed throughout our entire childhood in Israel. And then when we reach these frameworks at 18, um, there's just even more stage uh, to, to showcase um, and use these soft skills. But it's something that we've actually fostered from a very, very young age. Right. So the foundation is built while the kids are in nursery school or the way they're raised. And by the time they get to be 18 and go to military service or to public service or whatever it might, is, might be, they already have the framework to go ahead and take the next step, which is be an entrepreneur, be a tech innovator, and not be afraid to fail. Is that right? Exactly. Yes, okay. yes. Okay, pretty novel, pretty novel. So let's take a step back. And I read your book over the weekend. Really great stuff. Really quick read, folks, by the Thank way. You. And uh, a lot of good stories, a lot of good um, uh, points and facts of technological innovation, as well as uh, entrepreneurs who founded huge companies uh, from the principles that you mentioned. So kids five, four, five years old are in the playground, and there's a sliding pond. You grew up, I believe, in Belgium. Is that right? Belgium and Switzerland. Belgium and Switzerland. Okay. So you have the perspective of being raised as European and as a mother uh, of, his, of three boys, how you raised your kids and how you saw people around your age kids. So just tell me about, as you brought up in the book, this, the, the sliding pond. How is that a major difference in the way Israelis look at a sliding pond for their kids and other people do, other countries? Sure. And, and, and you've actually touched upon the, the nuance here. It's actually not the kids that are different at that age. It's how the adults and how the environment is actually treating those children. So uh, when I was four, we moved from Israel. I'm, I'm born and raised here to an Israeli family, but we did travel uh, when I was young. And at the age of four, we moved to Geneva. And my first childhood memories are from the International School of Geneva. And some of them really relate to the first days at school. 
um, of the kindergarten teacher onboarding me at school because I did not speak their language, not, not French, neither English, only Hebrew. So she had, I needed help. And she onboarded me, taking me by the hand, literally by the hand and, and showing me everything. One of my first childhood memories uh, was of, of the slide, which obviously as an Israeli kid or any kid around the world, we all know exactly what to do when we see a ladder and a slide, same structure all over the world. Um, and she took me by the hand and, the, the, uh, and guided me or instructed me with hand gestures on, on you know, how to use that structure, which again, I was familiar with. Um, there was a kid in front of me, I waited behind the kid. She asked me to stop, to pause until the kid uh, climbed up the ladder. Then it was my turn, I understood, I climbed up the ladder. The kid in front of me sat, went down the slide. I did the same fun, childish uh, experience that any kid knows. Right, so, so there was a structure to actually how to go on the slide. There were rules and regulations, yeah. which make all the sense. Kid on the bottom, you don't yeah. want to kill the kid on the bottom by sliding down too quick. The kid's on the thing. You want to only go yeah. down, order, not a problem. Not a problem. And I like to think of it like, you know, uh, if you want classical music or a, you know, there, there, there is a rhythm to it. There is a tempo to it, which makes a lot of sense, by mm -hmm. the way. A best practice. The best practice is you go, you climb up the ladder, you wait, you sit, you go down the slide, you slide. And, 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 you know, in a, in a, in a rhythm, right? Yep. Now, if you'll go to an Israeli playground with the exact same structure of the slide, again, assuming that talent is spread all over the world equally and that children at the age of two, three, four, okay, they, they, they possess the same natural uh, human behaviors. What's different is how society, how the environment, be it teachers, babysitters, their parents, signs at a playground, how the entire environment is actually influencing them. And if you'll go to an Israeli playground, well, first, the signs tell a very different story than signs of playgrounds in other countries around the world. Um, and signs are a great way of learning about societies uh, because they're actually setting the expectations of a society. Um, in Israel playground, you'll see very few restrictions on the signs at the playground, very few. And what you'll see is uh, chaos, or how, the way we say it in Hebrew, balagan. Um, there will be kids running all over, one will be jumping, the other will be standing just in the middle of the slide, waiting for other kids to bump into her. And, and a third would be, you know, climbing up the slide on their tummy. And very rarely... Will you ever see an adult interfering and guiding or instructing the children on how to use the slide? So this is a, a, a small micro example, but it actually demonstrates the difference from a very, very young age in the environment's influence on, on, on children um, and how you can actually from a, a young age either foster or so strengthen or weaken some behaviors um, that are very natural, uh, curiosity and proactivity of children, and even uh, resolving conflicts among children. Okay, so let me ask you this. So, so the kids going on the slide and the parents, uh, the adults, teacher, whatever it is, not interfering. And you're right, you have the kid who's standing in the middle, you have the kids swinging off the side, you have it all looks like total chaos. 
How does this translate into creating a mindset of innovation, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, um, uh, uh, technological advancements, all of these things? How does just observing that, how did you come to that conclusion? So uh, the example of the playground and of the slide, again, is, is, is uh, uh, you know, uh, a microcosmos where soft skills that in my opinion, and not just mine, but um, also the World Economic Forum's skills for the future list, okay? Um, not connected to Israel, but actually globally, those are defined as the skills that we humanity will need the most in the future uh, or even already today. And these are all skills that are very difficult to be taught. Um, they need to be practiced. So what are all these skills? Tell me the what thing- these skills are. So for example, emotional intelligence. If you keep telling children, if you keep providing children with guidelines, they need to do to put less effort into resolving conflicts by themselves. Now, yes, in Israeli in an Israeli typical playground, you'll see kids running all over and there will be a lot of confronting points because it's not well ordered, but very rarely will you see kids uh, uh, you know, struggling with each other. They will resolve it between them. Actually, the more the adults will interfere, uh, the more chances that it, it will end differently. Um, but if you just let them resolve it, they will find a way of resolving it. Not necessarily the way we want to, not necessarily the, the order we have in mind. Um, so emotional intelligence is one thing. And, and actually working in team, um, but not because someone is telling you that it's important to work in a group or to act, right, for a child. But actually, because this is the natural thing to do when you want to play, the natural thing to do is to kind to try and engage or be engaged by others into a play. Um, so that's one thing. Or exploration and curiosity. If we said that in Switzerland, my kindergarten teacher introduced me to the best practice, that's the way of doing it. If I'm not introducing my children to a best practice, they will figure out by themselves the best practices, not necessarily one, but, but few. Eventually they will learn that with a certain rhythm, it makes more sense and it's more pleasant even to them. It's not necessarily the rhythm or the tempo that I had in mind. So it's more like a, if you want a jazz impro session, rather than classical music that has very strict rules to it. And how does this apply, how does this apply to become a, a starting a tech company, for example? So all of these soft skills, um, critical thinking, by questioning, by, again, by, by reass- reassessing assumptions, by not following, by definition, not following the rules because there are rules, but actually trying to understand them before you just follow them. All of these, and teamwork, like we said, so leadership versus management, okay? Um, Not being afraid of making mistakes. An entrepreneur, by definition, has very, very low chances of success. By definition, most entrepreneurs don't succeed. Most innovators don't succeed. And yet they're still trying because they have this inner drive. Um, The more you are capable of accepting failures or uncertainty, 
the more chances you will be willing to take risks. Entrepreneurship is about taking risks. Innovation is about taking risks. So these are just few examples from, from the childhood that you can then translate into these soft skills in the workforce that are so critical. Right. And so these kids, four or five years old, are getting the, this, this mindset reinforced uh, from a very early age in school as well, because the teachers are all your hands off as well, resolve it on your mm -hmm. own. And they learn to work as a unit and they learn not to be fearful of making a mistake or doing it differently. In fact, differently is encouraged. Differently is cool. Differently means you're thinking. Differently means you have an opinion. And, and you could ask, how does this, how does it resonate being, you know, different and having your own opinion? But we just said working on a team, right? Um, so the book has, I think, one of my, my, one of my favorite chapters in the book is called, in Hebrew, there is an I in we. Ani, I, the, and anachnu, we, are actually grammatically from the same root. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's actually, it's really the plural of I. But the meaning is much deeper than that. It means that within a we, within a team, there are actually different I's, uh, as the letter I, mm -hmm. different individuals that each hold a different opinion and they don't have to fully melt and converge into a cohesive team in order to, to, to operate as a team. Actually, the opposite. The more diverse the team is, the more opinions we have on the team, the more trust. It needs to sit on trust. Okay, The dynamics are dynamics of trust then the richer the, uh, you know, the, the, the potential solution, the outcome right. is. Right. And this is what diversity is all about, uh, that we're really trying to achieve. And today there are studies that show how diversity actually increases ROI and increases success of metrics in business. It's exactly that. Right. So originality is encouraged, uh, where uh, in Japan, the saying was that if the, it's the nail that sticks out that gets hammered in. So here it's, everybody wants to be a nail because they want to find something different and it's encouraged. And we'll give a couple more examples in a second of developing this mindset early on about originality, about diversity, about coming up with your own ideas. And I think one of the things which got me was the, um, was the sense of there's no one way to do something. Mm -hmm. There are different avenues. So I think there is a sliding pond example was great is that you could have a kid swinging off the, the ladder, another kid walking up backwards, another kid, doesn't matter. They're all not, there's no one right way. There's mm -hmm. whatever's enjoying. Exactly, exactly. And, and in terms, in the context of innovation, technological or other, but in the context of innovation, that, that's, that's gold. Because what you want is actually to bring people that have different perspectives that are looking at, you know, the same problem from different directions and don't have, there's no one answer, right? To begin with, it's actually an exploration exercise of finding solutions, answers that we may have not thought about from the beginning. So in the context of innovation and in the, and in the context of entrepreneurship, two different elements, um, this proactiveness um, is, is really valuable. Right, so one example you give is a Jewish holiday, Lagba Omed, which is a day where Israelis and Jews celebrate with making bonfires in commemoration of an event that took place a couple of thousand years ago. And 
um, you spoke about, you wrote about how that is really a microcosm of how a, really a tech company or any company works in Israel in terms of the teamwork, the gathering, the hands-off. Could you walk us through that? Definitely. So, so Lag Balmer is, uh, I think, one of the favorite holidays for children in Israel. It's only one evening, but actually for children in Israel, the preparation for Lag Balmer, um, they start three weeks before, around Passover, after Passover vacation, uh, because what's happening, so on the eve of Lag Baomer, um, we light bonfires. Now, I will say um, that the past two years have been somehow different, not just because of COVID, but also gradually because of the environmental issues uh, of lighting bonfires and, of course, the, the pollution that it creates. So there have been some shifts in, in how this holiday is celebrated in Israel with uh, an attempt to consolidate bonfires. Um, but generally speaking, and for any Israeli who grew up in Israel, you would ask them, what's the custom of Lag Bomel or, or describe Lag Bomel for me? They will have the same experience living south or north um, in a city or in a kibbutz, the same exact experience. And that is of a project, a real project from A to Z, which is initiated, led, and executed by 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old kids. Um, from its, uh, I would say, initiation of collecting the tranches of wood. Now, for those of you who know Israel, in Israel, there's no Walmart or Target where mm -hmm. you can go and buy, a, you know, a, a box of, of tranches of wood for the fire because we don't heat with, with woods here. Um, so it's not something you can actually easily find. Um, where do we find uh, um, woods in Israel or, or tranches of wood? In only one place, in construction sites, which we have all over. Mm -hmm. So those kids would wander the streets of Haifa or Tel Aviv or the Moshavim or the Kibbutzim of Israel and would go literally enter construction sites. Daylight, very dangerous. They're not supposed to do that. They would go inside and they would collect, they will find woods and collect them. Now, how will they carry them? Because they're heavy, right? And these are young kids. So what they do is they go first to the supermarket, put a five shekels coin, which is the equivalent of a quarter in terms of size, they will take a supermarket cart and for the next 10 days, week or so, that supermarket cart would be their, you know, means of transportation. The wheelbarrow. For collecting the goods. Right. Yes, exactly. But but it's happening daylight and actually no, they're not stealing it. It's not, it's, it's everyone sees them. That's right. the custom. It's, it's, it's totally accepted by the the supermarket owners, they know that they're going to get their wagons back in the construction site. Exactly. It's not hooliganism. It's just reality. Right. Yes, yes. And what you'll see is, A, they always do it in teams, in groups. Okay? That's one thing. Second thing, it's really a project. It's just like starting a company or any project that we know because it has planning and thinking of resources and even marketing intelligence or business intelligence because they're thinking of other groups. Where are their competitors from other classes lighting their bonfire, where, sh where should they? And then they're managing the uh, resources and everything they've collected, and they're managing who the shifts, who will be okay, guarding the spots and when, and they're buying food, and they're buying marshmallows, and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and other things. 
until really the climax of the event, which is lighting the bonfire itself. But the most fun part of this project is actually not just the bonfire, it's the entire preparation right. of the bonfire. And during these two weeks, it's something that the kids are doing by themselves. Right. And the parents, and what I found interesting uh, that you wrote about, the parents in these situations have a standoff kind of uh, approach. They're, they're telling, you know, they're, they're not interfering. The kids do this all on their own. Yes. And at the end of the bonfire, the the supermarket carts get returned. They get their five shekels mm-hmm. back. Life goes on. And the parents weren't involved. And this is, we're talking about fire. In America, the kid walks outside without a without sunscreen. They might get arrested. Some school teacher might call on them. So that's not the case here. It's a pretty laissez-faire type of approach. Yes, it's a laissez-faire type of approach. It's not a neglecting type of approach. So, so there's there's a you know a nuance there. It's not I don't care what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I, I care, but I'm I'm giving them the distance and the freedom. Okay, and I trust more than anything. I do trust their common sense. And children, by the way, at any age respectively to their, you know, development, but at any age, they can be somehow reliable and trustable and responsible if you just let them. If you don't let them, you know, ma- uh, uh, manifest their capabilities and you do everything for them and you helicopter their entire, you know, activities from A to Z throughout the day um, and you schedule play dates for them instead of letting them ask you to join, but you actually do the, you're the one who's managing their entire schedule. They have very little room to actually develop these skills. Right. They are capable. You brought up some examples in your book of entrepreneurs, technical tech, uh, technology, especially who have built huge businesses. And they mentioned some of these things. Just give us a couple of examples of those. Yes, definitely. So um, one of my favorites is actually the story of uh, Micha Kaufman. Micha is the, the, one of the co-founders and the CEO of Fiverr, um, which is a, a very successful um, gig economy, uh, professional services platform, mostly in the U.S., um, and and Micha, Micha tells his story on how he, as a, even a little later than, than these early, um, you know, ages of, of nine and 10, how a little, he was born in a kibbutz, but then his family actually moved into Haifa. And his childhood memories uh, from junior high are less from actually, you know, the actual work at school, but actually everything that happened after school. Uh, um, and, and he gives some, some very interesting, uh, uh, I would say anecdotes on, on what he used to do and the risks he used to take, but not just risks as a teenager, uh, but also the involvement of his parents in that and how, you know, he was inspired by his father's work, um, by being an active part in a sense, an, an active partner, I would say. Okay. Um, in, in, in seeing um, his father's career. Um, so maybe that's another message by sharing more with our children or by sharing more with our colleagues, with our peers, with our employees, with our teams, we can actually engage with them, with them right. in, a, in a more optimal way. Right. For example, most people don't know that the memory stick was invented in Israel. 
and that was right. The multi- USB flash drive. USB yes. flash drive, right? It's it's a multi generation, multi generational project, if you will. Uh, father, grandfather, father, son, and that really is a good microcosm of everything that you're mentioning. You just want to share that with us. So the uh, the story of uh, um, so actually I've, uh, the story of Dov Moran, who is the uh, the inventor known as the inventor of the USB flash drive, is, is a fascinating story. Um, and, and I'll let the re- our readers, uh, well, hopefully my readers, mm-hmm. to to um, complete also his personal story on how he grew um, um, it, it, with his actually uh, grandfather and the strong connection that existed there be- between these two. But an interesting thing to show to tell here through this story is M Systems, his company was a huge success. Um, after 17 or so years, the company was sold actually to SanDisk. Um, at a, a multi-billion dollar mm-hmm. transaction, which back in the days in Israel in 2006 was one of the largest in the ecosystem. And immediately thereafter, Dove uh, decided to start a new company. Now, imagine, you know, a huge success, uh, uh, well-known, and, and his next venture um, was naturally a huge promise. I had the privilege to actually join Dove as really on the founding team of his next project. Okay, wait, before you go any uh, further, Modu. before you go any further, this is like a layup. Here's a guy who's an amazing innovator, technological genius, creates the flash drive, the memory stick, which is still amazing to me, and sells it for, I think, $1.5 billion or so to, uh, to, to SanDisk. And then you say, all right, perfect. I'm going to partner with this guy. This guy, I'm going to be on his next, his next, great company. I want to have a front row seat and you get a front row seat, right? Yes. Okay. Now well, tell me- the, the, the interesting question, of course, is not, you know, uh, again, I'm very humble here is not mm-hmm. why I wanted to partner with him. It's actually the opposite at that time, uh, because we are speaking to early 2000, well, late 2006, early 2007, and actually Dove, and that's uh, a side anecdote. Dove still today, Dove Moran still today, it has a very unique approach to talent and to identifying uh, potential um, within talent, not necessarily in their domain of expertise. How did he find you? So um, he was introduced to me by a a joint friend, a colleague from the um, ecosystem, and he invited me, Dov then invited me to a meeting. It was not an interview. He didn't have any position or, you know, spec uh, um, or a list of requirements. He didn't. He didn't even start the new company. He just invited me. By the way, like he does every Friday for the past, I don't know, twenty plus years. Um, he holds meetings that are not in the core of his business. Um, so he invi- and that's also um, mentioned in the book. It's it's fascinating this approach to talent. So he invited me to a meeting. Um, and we just had our conversation, just like you and I had, uh, about a lot of things. And at the end of the conversation, he said, listen, Mbala, I'm starting, I'm planning on starting this new company. And I'd really like you to be on the, on the founding team, on the, on the establishing team of the company. Now, I'm not 100% sure exactly what your position will be. But I want you on the uh, team. Because back then I was still a, a lawyer, general counsel. But I want you on the team. So you're leaving out one thing which I mentioned in the beginning, you were part of uh, Unit 8200. And there were many 
technological geniuses who left that and who left 8200 former soldier former uh, former uh, officers who went on to be CEOs and create huge companies and they're highly in demand because of all of the soft skills as well as the as the hard skills that they have so being part of that was a good calling card huh? he knew what he was who he was meeting before even before he even got in the room definitely um and, and although dove is not from 8200 um, and but you usually are. 1800 but, 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 but people used. Saying, yes, but you yes. are. <laughs> so, so he knew that. No, correct. But, 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 but here's what I want to say. Actually, the R&D team at Modu, which we built, was based essentially on 8200 vets. Okay. Veterans uh, that came out of the unit, actually, even as teams, because they really knew how to work together. And we had to grow the company very fast. But, but, but you know what, I'll connect everything together, actually. So we started the company in 2007 with this huge promise. Three years, the company raised $120 million within eight months, which again, back in the time was incredible. A lot of money. It's a lot of money. A lot of money, very quickly, just because of the promise of the, you know, the, the former success that Dove had. But in 2010, the company closed. And it was actually a failure. So the company, Modu, failed um, with its 300 employees, lost all the $120 million within a period of three years, a huge, huge failure. With, by the way, an entire R&D based on the most talented 8200 grads mm. that you can imagine, okay? Uh, what now? So actually something very interesting happened. Um, for most of the people that were involved in this adventure, instead of saying, okay, I learned my lesson, I'm not taking risks. Uh, this doesn't make sense. I'll work. I'm super talented. There's a lot of uh, demand in Israel for people, just like you said, like myself and like others. I'll go work for, for Google or for Intel or for Apple, uh, for all these multinationals, over 400 of them that have R&D offices in Israel. No, that's not what happened. Actually, out of Modu, out of this failure, 30 plus startups were established, not on the technology of Modu, the technology was actually sold to Google. It was kind of, a, you know, an explosion of, of parts of talent that actually decided that the entrepreneurial path is the right path for them. And inspired by Dove, um, started their own companies, some of which extremely successful to date. Right. I think what I found so interesting about that when I was reading your book was that the entrepreneur, the, 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 um, the person who was involved in this project didn't consider themselves as a failure. And I think you mm -hmm. point out that's extremely important. It's, I didn't personally fail. The business failed or the idea failed. I'm not a failure. The business failed. All right, we'll figure it out somewhere else. And they went ahead and they picked up and started another business. Correct. And, and, and again, it's not out of not taking accountability or responsibility. Okay, it's not that. It's, it's not shifting responsibility to someone else or to external conditions. It's actually saying the fact that we failed as a group, the fact that this company failed, the business failed, does not mean that personally each and every one of us is a failure. It means that we failed in different, you know, understandings, in our uh, responsiveness, to the markets, 
in understanding some elements, maybe in the R&D, in, in so many things. But it does not mean that I personally failed and I cannot do anything else. Right. Uh, because otherwise, it's, it's very difficult to stand up again and and restart. Yeah, and this comes from the whole culture, as you mentioned, of uh, from kids, from being kids, mm -hmm. that um, I think it was, um, you, you mentioned the study that um, I think it was Singapore, their kids had a much higher math scores, or ranked much higher in math than the Israeli kids. But, yes. and here was the difference, go ahead, tell me that difference. So generally, when you look at uh, the scores, PISA scores of uh, Israeli schools, um, and they're, they're, they're rated at the age of 15. Um, Israel doesn't do that well at all. Um, in this specific study, it was comparing 15-year-old um, math students in junior high, same level of, of, of math understanding, um, same problems. The Singapore kids did much better in terms of more children getting to the Correct right, results. Right, right, more right answers. Okay. More right answers. Mm -hmm. However, most of them, almost all of them, reached the answer the way they were taught. So there was, again, going back, there was a best practice. There was a way of, of solving that math problem. And they did it the way they were taught. Less Israelis solved correctly the math challenge. In math, there is one answer at the end. So less of them solved it correctly. But from those who did solve it correctly, there were over 10 times more okay, ways of solving the problem than the Singaporean ones. So less of them reached the accurate final answer, but those who did, did it in so many different ways, which demonstrates that they were not taught one way and excellence at the end of that way. So there's one way, if you follow the way, you're solving the problem. They were, thought, they were taught how to think, how to approach, mm -hmm. which takes more practice, which takes more maturity in math also. It takes more um, creativity, more originality. Uh, it, right. it requires thinking, it's not rote. It requires thinking, yeah, and it takes more practice in the right. sense that for 14, 15 year old children, it takes more practice to eventually achieve both a very high level in math and also a very creative level in math. Right. But we're starting with the creativity. We're starting with not telling them exactly how to solve it. We're letting them solve it in different ways. And actually, like you said at the beginning, it's it's very encouraged. Yeah, you know, in the United States, uh, there are so many who lament the fact that the United States doesn't rank that high in, in STEM uh, you know, in, in mm -hmm. sciences and engineering. But then again, so many Americans have won Nobel Prizes. Technological innovation comes from the United States. It's the leader, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Face. They all started right. here because it's not the right answer because you can find who gets the right answer. Anyone can figure that mm -hmm. one out, right? You could hire, you know, people who do that. But looking at a problem or looking at a service or looking at a product and saying, think different, you know, like Steve Jobs and create a whole new way of doing things, that's the magic. And and I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of uh, uh, way they, the way it's measured, they're, they're measuring it the wrong way. It's not how many people get the right answer. It's how many people or how many companies or how many things could come up with a new way to do something. And in our society, we prize success and poo-poo failure. 
And in American terms of technological innovation, entrepreneurs who failed are sought after by VCs more, venture capitalists, because mm -hmm. they've been through the process. So I want that guy or girl. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think it's, it's the same in Israel. And, and, and I think that eventually you want both. You want also those who know how to follow the rules and just answer the right answers. And you also want those who are, you know, disruptors and think completely differently and um, don't know the answers, don't start with knowing the answers. Looking at the future, looking at how the world is evolving, look, looking at the rapid changes that we're all experiencing, I think the balance, what we are experiencing is a changing balance between those two groups, if you want. If in the past we needed more of the, those hard skills, you know, when, when I started my career, my CV looked in a specific way to answer the requirements. It was mostly based on hard skill, knowledge, past experience. Today, CVs look completely different. Definitely the tech world in Israel and, and elsewhere. Companies like LinkedIn and Google have already admitted that some of their past requirements, prerequisites, are no longer relevant. Right, the college is not a requisite. They, you know, I, I was for reading, example. Yeah, I was reading the other day that, um, I think he was at Yale, I forgot where it was, uh, the, the head of the, the computer science department said, if I had hired kids, I wouldn't want them to have a degree in computer sciences. I want the one who was, you know, coding since he's four years old and came up with his own way. And, and this is, shock, you know, it's not shocking. It's anyone who's paid, mm -hmm. you know, a zillion dollars to go to college, has seen the results when they get into the workforce, they realize you're starting at ground zero. <laughs> you know, all of that education didn't teach you what you needed to, to learn. And here comes that guy who didn't have all that education, but was doing it since they were seven years old on a Commodore 64. You know? It, so yes, it, it's exactly that. And it's eventually, uh, the secret is in the blend. The secret is that there is no one right answer or one formula that fits all countries, all organizations, right. all teams. But in certain um, cultures, in certain cultures, it works better. You know, it's more homogeneous mm -hmm. where Israel, which most people don't know, is, is a, a, a really a melting pot is not even the word for it. I think there are people from Israel, Jews throughout the world. I think you have a hundred something countries. You could literally walk down one street in Jerusalem and bump into 30 or 40 people who represent 50 different countries. Right. A little like in the U.S., by the way, in that sense, where you, you have, well, in some communities in the U.S., where you have people who originally came from different backgrounds. Um, and, and actually, in terms of culture or, you know, values, specific ones, they don't have a lot in common. Okay. Uh, my, my, my personal story is a typical Israeli story. My father immigrated from Egypt. My mother immigrated from Poland. They met at university here in Israel. Honestly, they have as individuals a lot in common in the cuisine, in the way they celebrated, not just the, you know, the general customs of Jewish holidays, but how it's actually done um, in, in, in how they, uh, uh, their families were actually built uh, internally. They were very different. They were they came from very different backgrounds. Um, they did have this one thing that connected them was you know in the early fifties coming to Israel and and building, being part of something as, built, as, building as, right, as, being, as being immigrants and coming to a country where 
every individual's worth was prized as forming a collective where mm-hmm. we have a common goal. Exactly. I think that we, you mentioned the word, uh, the term melting pot we used to, which David Ben-Gurion uh, uh, um, actually brought into the conversation. And he used to say that the Israeli military is a melting pot of the Israeli society. Uh, my actually interpretation to that is, is somehow different. Um, I think that today or in the, in the past decades, it's no longer a melting pot. We're not trying to melt people into one standard mm-hmm. or one Israeli characteristic. It's actually understanding that there are different people, just like we said, with different preferences and different backgrounds. And that is what creates the magic, um, uh, them having different voices and right, different you know, perspectives. You know, look, I think you brought it up in the book, but I saw an updated study which showed that 43% of CEOs uh, in the Fortune mm-hmm. 500 are the children of or themselves immigrants. Yes. So that is a staggering statistic. And, uh, you know, the, yeah, go ahead. Uh, correct, because immigrants all over the world are pockets of entrepreneurship. Because the immigration step is actually entrepreneurship. No, it's no, it's, it's involves a risk. Moving from involves, one place to the other, yeah. restarting mm-hmm. all over again. And you, what you can see in neighborhoods of immigrants throughout the world or communities would be typically small, medium businesses that they start, um, some micro businesses and micro entrepreneurship, but there's always starting something new out of that decision to move. Um, and, and this is why immigrants are so successful in across the world in thinking well, big and not right. being afraid of taking risks. They've already right. taken risks. Right. They're, they're it, used to taking risks. Any immigrant who, who comes to a new country uh, already mm-hmm. it comes there with not being reckless, but on paper, yeah. it really doesn't make that much sense. They're coming here. They mm-hmm. don't know the language. They might not know the language. They don't have money. They don't have resources. But they make that leap anyway in the anticipation or the real the, the ultimate goal of having a better life. And they'll do anything towards that mean and work as a collective with their family in a business working together so the next generation could have it better. I know we see it here yeah. in in in, uh, in 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 Brooklyn, where where I grew up. Uh, there used to be virtually in every corner uh, a Chinese laundry, run by immigrants who came mm-hmm. from China, and they uh, used to do shirts. You know, Chinese laundry used to do the shirts, and you had the whole family working. And I grew up with with one uh, guy in our neighborhood, Roy, and he had to do, he had to work there. He had a, he was on our corner. He had to work, and afterwards he could play ball, go to school, whatever it is. Uh, Roy and the rest of his siblings, there's no more Chinese laundries because those kids went to Harvard and Yale and became scientists mm-hmm. and doctors and entrepreneurs. And, and by the second generation, it was history. And it, it was that experience of uh, there's no such thing as failure. You know, it's just another way we'll figure out how to make it work. And when you have that yeah. mindset, there are no limitations. Exactly. And in Israel, it's an entire, within a very short time frame, an entire state. That evolved. Yeah, like yeah, this. you know, it's 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 look also it's it's that um, recently I remember um, just a few I think it was a year or two years ago when uh, the Israeli team uh, took the Google challenge to land mm-hmm. a uh, what was it to land X Prize? Yeah, the X Prize landing the sheet. Yeah, yeah. Could you tell tell us about that? Sure. So that's actually a fascinating story. So three three young 
tech enthusiastic that have actually only one of them at the beginning had something to do in terms of interest in space, but the other two, not at all. Right. This um, was, by the way, let me just interrupt you. This was a challenge put out by Google for, what is it, a million dollars? So the challenge was to land a, Google uh, announced a challenge to launch and land um, a, a mini, a small space vehicle that would take a selfie on the moon. Okay. And the price was actually supposed to be, I think, one million yen, or one or maybe a little like more that. than I that. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, so they heard about that um, and just, uh, uh, you know, driven by the challenge, they said, okay, this sounds super interesting. We want to take part in that. Again, they did not, by the way, this, this story is told in the introduction to the book because it's really a fascinating Israeli chutzpahdik story. So many, many applications uh, and many teams and groups started this challenge. Uh, I think over 100 at the beginning, and eventually as the years <laughs> progressed, all of the teams gradually started closing these projects because it didn't make any sense. Because obviously, landing a, a small vehicle on the moon costs much more than $1 million, and it doesn't make sense right. this economically, this project. But for these three guys, what they've realized already, with, so when they, on the bar, decided at a night where they, you know, had drinks and, and, and had fun together to answer this, to address this challenge, then it became, and they started engaging with people and, 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 and connecting and bringing more and more people at the beginning voluntarily to be part of this project. But then they realized something very interesting, that the goal actually for them is not to land this space vehicle on the moon and take a selfie. They've realized throughout the process of the first two years that it's about creating a project in Israel that would fascinate young children um, to be exposed to, you know, space technologies, a new space. And the challenge was only a means to that. So they've raised philanthropy um, and, and, and they've raised the help of the Israeli Air Force Industries, which are world experts mm -hmm. in satellites and space and gradually this project actually evolved um still it was the lowest budget for eventually a space vehicle that was uh um launched Bereshit was the last team that actually made it in the challenge um and then what happened so the the space vehicle was launched um, through the orbit and everything. Um, and the spacecraft actually <laughs> did not land because while landing, I think four seconds or five seconds above the surface of the moon, it exploded. Right. It had, it was within four, it's just amazing. It came within 490 feet, 150 meters of landing, but it was traveling too quickly. So they couldn't yeah. slow it down. It crashed. And in, they crashed. I, yeah, but I found what was so amazing is I think it was the president of Israel who was watching at the time said, all right, we'll, we'll try again. Immediately. That Immediately. evening. Amazing. By the way, Wubi Livlin was then the president. Right. He watched it with a group of children, speaking of children. And on that evening, he said, okay, we're not stopping you. We'll have Belashi too. Sure enough, the philanthropist Amazing. also agreed to to donate more money, and uh, we're now at the midst of Bereshit 2, 
which now has nothing to do with Google Prize. Right, right. You know, it's just amazing. And also, uh, what I find so interesting, just on the side note here, is that Bereshi 2, which will launch in 2024, includes collaboration with United Arab Emirates as one of the seven countries that are expressing interest. So a right, new that's dawn. a result yeah, just, of the Abraham Accords. Who yeah, would imagine, right? Just amazing. Uh, is, is, uh, Ten know. years ago, when Bereshit 1 started, that, that there would be such a fruitful collaboration yeah, uh, between the space amazing. agency of the UAE and Israel. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, Inbo, I could speak to you for the next five hours. So uh, mm -hmm. we're going we're gonna to cut this here. And I just want to tell you, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Folks, the name of the book is Chutzpah, Why Israel is a Hub of Innovation and Entrepreneurship. There it is. There it is mm -hmm. for those who, by who are Collins, watching. By, by Harper Collins, Well, get on Amazon. It's pretty simple. Good. And um, you also have a website? Yes. So Chutzpah Center um, is my website where I share my, uh, you know, my approach. Um, I'll be uh, launching a Chutzpah one-on-one -on -one online crash course very soon, which is aimed for young professionals. Outstanding. Um, so stay tuned and yes, please follow me. Outstanding. Mm -hmm. All right. Inbel, thank on all you. social media, of course, in Valerielli, just like my name. Right. You can you find can, me anywhere. We'll put it down in the description. Uh, but uh, folks, really great stuff. Uh, and what, what I like about also, it's, 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 uh, it was so innovative how you came up with a totally different angle that Startup Nation and other books looked at a whole different set of factors. Mm -hmm. And you as a mother uh, looked and said, no, so we raise our kids. And uh, just as my, my have a, I have a daughter who lives in Israel, and she's an Israeli mother, and I see the way she's raising my grandchildren, and it's exactly what you're saying. When they come here, it's mm -hmm. like I try to put rules and regulations. The kids are looking like, yeah, I'd be crazy. I do what I want. <laughs> you know, I so, said, well, in my house, you follow my rules, but they don't really do that. Uh -huh. All right. Well, yeah. next time you'll remember me. <laughs> yeah. well, right. thank you so much. Thank you so much and all thank the success Thank you very to you. much, Charles. Great speaking to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.